When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I came back from the World Cup and I was depressed. What am I supposed to do now? I did it. I had killed myself to get to this point. I had done everything that, that people said I couldn't do and I did it and I held my own against some of the best players in the world. Yo, I could just drop the mic. Welcome to the Coffee on Football podcast. I'm Sebastian Alvarado. After a few weeks break, we're now back for season two of this long-form interview where I sit down with some of the most influential and interesting profiles in the game. I'm really excited about these new episodes. We have an amazing lineup and we're kicking things off with one of the coolest profiles out there, Jimmy Conrad. He's a former professional with a career spanning 13 years with clubs such as San Jose Earthquakes, Kansas City Wizards, and Chivas USA, all in the MLS. He's also played for Lech Poznan in the Polish League. He has 27 caps with the US national team, the highlight being the 2006 World Cup, where he was one of the best players on that team, together with Clint Dempsey. After retiring, he became a media personality and is today probably more known than during his playing career. He has his own YouTube channel, The Jimmy Conrad Show, that has almost 70,000 subscribers, and he has a huge following across all his social media channels. It was a true pleasure speaking with him. I had a blast. I hope you enjoyed this one. So without further ado, let's dive straight into it. Jimmy. It's an honor having you here. Welcome to Coffee and Football. Thank you for having me, even though I came in and asked for tea. So I don't know if I've already broken <laughs> rules. I always ask the question, obviously, do you drink coffee even? I don't. I had a heart issue, uh, something I don't think it's similar to what Clint Dempsey's going through at the moment with his irregular heartbeat, but I had something that made me dizzy and I thought I was going to pass out in a game when I was in high school. And so the doctor just said, hey, you know, there's there's some signs, there's some issues, we're going to monitor you, but in the meantime, you should stop drinking caffeine. So I have limited my caffeine intake uh, quite a bit since I was that age. But I used to love slurping down Coke and Dr. Pibb was my favorite, which is like a really sugary version of uh, Dr. Pepper. So um, yeah, I don't, I don't do the caffeine route so much. I know some tea has it and I, I try to avoid those teas, but if it does have a little bit, I, I'm never afraid of a little caffeine. Sounds good. 
You're a pretty active uh, person anyways and energetic, so not sure you need that much caffeine. <laughs> That's true. That's I, fair. I think you need something calming. <laughs> That's fair. How are things today? What are you keeping yourself uh, busy with? Well, I uh, make internet, so that's kind of my uh, token line. And I have broken away from Kick TV, a, a channel I've been associated with. I was the first hire of this company. It was a part of the YouTube's initiative in 2012, where they put $100 million into 100 channels for original programming. And we had so much success after year one that the, we were one of five of the 100 that they reinvested in. And we were housed by MLS. And it got to the point where MLS had to make a decision about whether to continue to use us as a production arm or or to sell us. And I think at that time, given what they were going through and what the, all the money they've put into MLS Digital, they thought it was the best to, to sell it. They found a, an eager buyer in um, Big Balls, as they're called, which is kind of funny to say. Based out of the UK. Based out of the UK. And those guys came in and, and um, had some ideas and bought us and, you know, and... Since then, we've had some creative differences, and I, we parted ways, which is which is fine. Um, they're doing. How long great. ago was that? That was in February. Oh, so it's quite recent. Yeah, quite recent, but it's been great. It's been great for them. Um, they've forged a, a new identity. With, oh, excuse me, without me, I think there was. Uh, I think I was really associated with Kick TV, and Kick TV was associated with me, and they needed to broaden that that picture a little bit. And there are more voices in the game than just me, and so it, it it made sense. And now I'm doing my own thing. So I've started my own YouTube channel, which has been fun and daunting. I had to teach myself how to edit and to learn how to tell the story from an editing perspective. Whereas when I was just kind of the talent, I would write and shoot, and then let somebody else kind of figure out how to put the pieces together. So it's actually made me a better storyteller. And it's made me hustle in a way that I didn't have to before. I had some, I had a team around me. I had some protection and that, I needed that at the start because I didn't know exactly what I was doing. But after four years of the grind and seeing it and seeing it from a producer's vantage point, seeing it from a talent's vantage point, seeing it from an editor's vantage point has made me pretty well rounded. So it's been a, a daunting challenge, but a challenge that I embrace. And on top of that, uh, I started my own company called Radical Creative Group, which, you know, is more of a, a space where I can invite friends to collaborate if we have an idea to pitch or to, to, to have, you know, we, we can kind of go together with strength in numbers. And we're just trying to create win-win situations. Um, it can be soccer related. It can be anything related. But if somebody's got a good idea and we have a link to a brand, well, let's just go pitch and see what happens. And so there's some things uh, that are happening. And, and on top of that, uh, there's a, a really big FIFA YouTuber. And on Twitch named Castro1021, who I am now managing. So that was a, uh, a, f a fun thing that fell into my lap and something I never thought I would ever do in my whole entire life. But we started off, we're good friends and it got to the point where I was advising him so much that, well, why don't we just formalize this and go from there? So right now, I'll just say that Radical uh, Creative Group, RCG, uh, has two horses in the stable. There's Castro and there's me and and I'm sure there'll be others moving forward. But um, we're pretty excited and we're putting some things together now that that really play to his strengths and play to mine. And, and uh, we're targeting uh, US versus Mexico on November 11th uh, to do some fun activations. So that that's kind of on my docket right now. And I'm, I'm working with EA Sports from FIFA 17, doing some content that's going to live in the game. So I was a player in the game for a long time. And to be back in it, making content and having some fun um, using their real estate, as it were, uh, is going to be pretty neat. And we'll, I'm really excited to be able to form these kind of relationships with with brands um, that to feel more personal, you know, that 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 uh, where you can have a real dialogue and conversation with them, and, and everybody takes ownership of what's happening. So it's it's been a really interesting experience, and, and it's been fun, and, and I'm really excited for the future. I bet. 
a few questions on <laughs> yeah. On, where, on, where do you want to start on that? Well, let's start on the end of when you parted ways with Kick. Was this a natural and kind of immediate step for you to take? Did you know what you wanted to do it? How you wanted to form it? What happened right after? Well, I think there was some urgency to do something. I'm a bit of a go-getter. I don't wait for things to happen. I just try to go make things happen. I'm not going to succeed every time, but I'm not going to not try, you know, and I think that grew from the discipline I had as a as a younger person and a player being told that I wasn't good enough, that no, you'll never be a professional. No, you'll never get a scholarship to UCLA. No, you're never going to get any of that stuff. And I did. I, I didn't get a scholarship, but I walked on at UCLA. I didn't get drafted and I had to go figure it out and fight. And so because I had gotten comfortable with adversity, when this adversity hit and it was a little bit unexpected in some ways. Like I guess you could sense it coming because of the conversations that we were having. And, and because if I pulled myself, my own ego out of the whole equation, it made perfect sense. And so I understood exactly where they were coming from. So once that happened, it became a lot more, uh, I don't know, uh, easily digestible. So it, it all ended amicably. I think those guys are doing great things. And I'm really proud of where Kick TV and now Kick has gone. And, and I'm excited for their future as well. You said now you're doing pretty much everything yourself, including mm -hmm, editing. Mm -hmm. Is that a resource-based decision? I'm making that assumption. Right. Or was there something else that went into that for you to kind of control all aspects of the process now? No, it's, it's a great question. It's a very alpha male, you got to have his fingers in everything type of thing. I, I really believe that my main motivation was I didn't want to have to rely on anybody right away because I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do or how what it was going to shape into. Now, I'm friends with Casey Neistat, who is very popular on YouTube. I mean, he's if you're on YouTube, you know who Casey Neistat is. He's a master of the space and that platform in particular. So just on that note, I mean, I, I have to say I'm quite impressed. Obviously, different people have gotten kind of different introductions into him. Like he's got his hardcore fan base. Mm -hmm. But then he did that brilliant video for Nike as well when mm -hmm. he traveled the world. Mm -hmm. But then what I was fascinated about is the amount of content he puts out on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Like I'm trying to manage editing this little podcast right. like once a week or a couple of times a week or so. I was about to shower him with the same type of affection because his work rate is incredible. So we try to go run when we can here in New York once a week. Doesn't end up, it's like once a month usually, sometimes once every two months. But I pepper him. Every time we run, I just pepper the guy with questions. It's just relentless amount of questions. And, and we just have a really good conversation about YouTube and space and creating. And he got some really good advice from another uh, popular vlogger named Roman Atwood who started off as like prank versus prank. And all Roman Atwood would, would say, because he doesn't, he puts these vlogs out, but they're not as highly produced as Casey, who puts a lot of imagination and, and thought through every shot. And Roman Atwood's just like, hey, this is my life. I've, here's my phone. I'm talking with my family. And he's really entertaining as well, but in a different way. And Roman just told him, just keep uploading. Just keep uploading. So I just took those three words from guys that have had success and they just kept kept uploading, kept uploading. And then I told Casey, you know, oh, man, I don't know. I'm just, you know, it's 20 videos in, 30 videos in. He's like, you're, never, you're not going to know your voice until you're about 100 videos in. And he was right. I, I now have a really good idea of the videos that I want to create, how I want to create them. And that allows me now from an editing standpoint to bring somebody in and say, hey, listen, this is how I want it to be. If I had given somebody and I brought somebody in to help me right away, it would have been more them. But now, and I would have lost that personality in the edit. But since I've now created stuff and have an idea of what works and what doesn't, for me, it, I can direct somebody who's now editing for me in a much different way. Take me through your creative process. I, I think uh, I'll start off by saying that I'm sure people are expecting a soccer conversation and we've got into a heavy creative process. But it's Which all relative, right? Yeah. yeah. It, because it, like I said before, a lot of the disciplines 
that I learned as a player are really serving me well now in this creative process and, and having a plan and sticking to it and having a regimen. So with regard to the creative process in general, I, I first wake up knowing that I have a blank canvas. And more often than not, I've already kind of pre-produced. I have an idea what I want to do the night before, what I want to do the next day, and how I'm going to shoot and cut it. But some people will see that blank canvas as either really, really heavy, and it's a lot of pressure. And there's others, uh, let's use Casey as another example, who just, oh, man, he loves it, embraces it, and takes it. And I, I, sometimes I fall into that other camp where I'm like, dude, I, don't, I have no idea what I'm going to do. But more often than not, I wake up and I'm like, oh, what are we doing today? What are we talking about and going from there? The beauty of YouTube is because you post every day, you get immediate feedback. People tell you what works, what doesn't. The community that's in the YouTube space is unlike any other community because they feel a part of what you're doing in your journey. Where on Twitter, it feels like news. Uh, on Facebook, it feels like everybody's just giving the best version of themselves. Snapchat's just a, a snapshot of your life at that time. You can do some fun stuff on there and try stuff as well. I do like that. But it's harder to, to see the feedback uh, on that. And so there's this nice community feel that YouTube has that, that hasn't been easily replicated by any other uh, app out there. So I, I really enjoy the community that I have and the fans that I've built. And, and through try a lot of trial and error, you, you learn there's a certain type of package and, and you kind of just see what works and, and what you're clicking on ultimately to see what you're interested in. So I kind of start from there. There are days when I don't know, but I'll go scan the top stories and like, what can I bring to that that's different than where they can get that information somewhere else? And so when I write and I write all my scripts. So you actually write out the I write script? Every, I write everything word for word. And then I write to the jump cuts. I don't even know if I should be telling you this. Yeah, but I write to the jump cuts. So I, How long does it take? It takes me it takes me a couple hours. It depends on exactly what I'm talking about and how easily the content comes to me or the ideas or the opinions come to me. And for those who don't know what jump cut is. So a jump cut is and it's very popular tool uh, editing tool on YouTube where you're talking you're talking you're talking you like basically cut yourself off mid-sentence and then you moved on to the next point or you have talked for two minutes, let's say, and you realize when you're in the editing process, uh, that, that minute and a half in the middle of that was crap. I'm just going to jump from this one point to this one point and just move on, right? And there's a lot of ways you can save jump cuts where at Kick TV, and I'm sure a lot of places, you put a picture over where the jump cut is. So you can't see it. You can just see it. So it doesn't, it just seems like you're flowing, free flowing conversation, but it's actually been a jump cut. So there's a pro tip for you. If you're watching any of those videos and the picture pops up, they're probably a mask in a jump cut. Now for YouTube, you learn that it doesn't even really matter. People expect the jump cut and it's really part of moving the story along and moving it faster. And I think there's something about creating content that makes people, you want to lean in. So I got into an argument, not an argument, uh, a, a gentleman's uh, disagreement, let's say. Yeah, of course. With an agent who represents a lot of the top guys, both here and abroad and in the soccer space. And he just, I was like, yeah, I don't understand why TV doesn't, why don't, I, I started at Fox Soccer right after I retired. I went to Fox Soccer and did a lot of in-studio stuff. I had no experience. So I really jumped at this kick TV opportunity because I knew I would get a lot of repetitions in front of the camera. And I just haven't found my way back into TV. I've done some color commentary, which feels like it's so traditional and everybody expects it to be a certain way. It hasn't been as fun for me. I'm more of a mystery science theater 3000 type of guy that, yeah, if I see something funny, I'm just going to acknowledge that that's funny. And it's hard for me to hold that in and just to be like this buttoned up guy. And, and I think the guys that do it in the US are fine, but I don't know if that's my cup of tea. Now, however, being in the studio, I think I'd fit in nicely or if we're creating some content, some shoulder programming around a big match or whatever, I think I could do that. But nobody ever reaches out to me. And so I'm talking to this guy about it. He's like, oh, well, it's because you're just joking around the whole time. And you're, you know, the way you package it. And, and I said, that's so, 
ah, I just, I, I fought him on that. I like, listen, I'm putting my flag in the ground. You're not listening then to my videos because if you listen to my videos, I'm giving you more in terms of content and ideas and opinion and background in three and a half minutes than you're getting from 30 minutes of these dudes in their, their suits talking the back and forth of their inside jokes about some play or how this guy should move that you don't get anything from. So you can come at me all you want, but I'm giving you real deal. You're just not listening to what I'm saying because you just, you, you can't get past how I package it. Or he's still stuck a bit more in the traditional. Well, that's how he makes his money, well. right? So exactly. he's going to try to. He's got to protect down. that. Yeah. yeah, I agree. So, there, yeah, right. So you have to think of it from a lot of different angles. But I remember being like, I don't want to work with this guy. Like somebody's like, oh, you should talk to him. He could represent you. I'm like, I don't want to represent him. And I've talked to IMG and CAA, and, and they're so in the traditional space. Like, dude, they don't even know how to represent somebody in the digital space. You know, if you have a lot of followers and it's just like so crazy, well, they're just going to link you with brands and not really even know how to use you. But man, there is there's a lot of people that are either fearful of what's coming or don't know how to handle it or don't want to lose their little fiefdom that they have. And so it's a, it's an interesting transition right now because I think overall in every sport, not just soccer, but there's a disruption in, in how people want to consume their content and including sports and, and you know, Twitter jumping into Thursday night football and, and um, yeah, there's some there's some big things on the horizon. And I think people that know and understand the digital space are going to ultimately win. And these other people are going to get phased out because they haven't, they wouldn't get phased out if they just embraced that it's happening instead of just fighting it the whole way. So I don't know. It, it's it's going to be an interesting little war that's going on. What kind of a following do you have? There's a lot of uh, fluff numbers out there, right? Everybody's got them. But my best following is on, is on Twitter. I think I have around 180,000 you know, it just kind of depends on the topic. Like if I'm jumping in on a conversation that everybody's having, then I'll get a lot of good traction. If I'm just doing stupid stuff or tweeting and just being myself, then it, it gets less. I would say uh, that my following is pretty loyal though, because I did help build Kick TV to over a million subscribers um, before I had left. And, you know, I think um, at some point, I'd hope that uh, they're going to migrate over to what I'm doing now because it was what they enjoyed in the first place, doing a lot of the, a lot of similar things. So so YouTube, I'm around 50, getting close to 50,000 and that continues to grow. And that means 50,000 subscribers, subscribers on your channel. So basically, yes, on my channel. So basically, if you subscribe to my channel, anytime I post a video, it'll pop up on your screen that I posted a video or pop up on your phone as a notification that I just dropped a new video. And, and I have a really avid and I think uh, my, my, my engagement, as they call it, is, is very healthy for the size of my channel. Take me through a typical day from the moment you get up. Mm -hmm. What kinds of routines do you have? Any media consumption habits? And, and then from there on. I would say, yeah, when I wake up, uh, I try not to look immediately at my phone. What um, time do you get up? I get up around 6.30 or 7. Um, it just depends on what time I go. I try to get 6 to 7 hours every night. Uh, I, had this, I had this dream. I had a dream once of going to bed around 10 and waking up around 5 or 6 and working out for an hour. And then coming back and helping my little girls get to school, um, being a part of and being active and engaged in their in their their morning. People ask me why I don't coach. I'm like, well, I am. I'm coaching two little ones right now. Uh, one's under 10 and one's U6, you know. So that's really important to me to be active and engaged and to be paying attention and to not be looking at my phone at those moments. I think every parent now is just a tendency to like, oh yeah, well, they're just sitting there watching TV. Uh, I'm just going to look at my phone. They're looking at the screen. Uh, I'll look at a screen too. But I've learned and, and I'm sure everybody knows it deep down. They still want you to watch TV with them. You know, that you're watching what they're watching and that, that there's something, you know, even I'll try to play video games with them. We have, we love Star Wars. So we do Lego Star Wars and I just try to make sure that you just put that phone away and, and when they're at home and they're, you can tell they're eager to talk and tell you about themselves and what they're doing and what they're excited about. 
it's really important to have your ears wide open. So uh, mornings and, and when they get home from school and I love picking them up from school because man, they have diarrhea of the mouth from that 15 minute walk and, and I love it. I can't get enough of it. So pretty much from 7 to 8.30, it's my kids. And then when I pick them up from 5 to when they go down, 5 to 8, I'm pretty much shut down. There'll be some moments that right now where I'm trying to lay out this new content schedule. I'm trying to get this company off the ground. So I, I'm, I express to them what I'm doing. I want them to know exactly what it is I'm doing and that I'm just not... There's a, there's some methodology, I suppose, behind this behavior and the decisions I'm making to... I don't say tune them out. That sounds pretty harsh because I'm still present. But but in some ways, hey, I need to upload this video really you know quick and I need to talk to my editor really quick or I need to work out with a thumbnail or whatever it goes into. Do they watch your content? At times they do. There's, there's sometimes where I cuss. And I don't cuss over the top, but there are moments where like, I'll just be emotional and I'll just say it. So they watch some of it. I think what's fascinating to them is that they get to see how it works. And they get to see all the behind the scenes and the editing and time that I pour into it. And I think there's some value to that. They can see the ideation and they can see the execution. And whereas everybody else just sees the final product, they get the nuts and bolts. And so I think that will serve them well. They're like, oh, all right. And there's something tangible at the end of it. So my, my wife's a lawyer. So she's just, you know, she does all this hard work and then the case settles. And she doesn't have that satisfaction, I think, that comes from like starting a project and having it end and having some form of resolution. Settlements are just kind of a like gray area. What kind of lawyer is she? She does uh, corporate governance. Yeah. And there are moments where it's in compliance. And she there's some really interesting cases that she works on. And there's other ones that are, you know, they're, they're not that great. But they're as... As you say, and I've, I've really enjoyed listening to your podcast, there's, there's something that you find within that case or that story that you can expand and really like, oh, that's really interesting. And uh, now I understand why there's a disagreement. And, you know, and then you can really, you can bite into it a little bit. So uh, I do like when she gives me some of the scoop, even though legally there are times where, you know, she can't give me anything. So I do appreciate hearing that side of things and, and going through her process. So a lot of it is, uh, you know, and I talk about so that's like kid family time, let's say, because my wife's included in that as well. And then I try at night to be more present when the kids go down and spending some time with my wife and all that. And then the rest of the day, I'm just trying to, to hustle and work. So what media do you consume on a daily basis? I start with Twitter. Twitter is my number one source of... Because you can. it's all curated for you, right? You decide who you want to follow. And it's, it's not always clicking on the news, though I do like to read uh, quite a bit so I can form my own opinions. But I do like to see where the conversation is being shifted and how it's being shifted and what people are saying. And I really do enjoy the medium just for that reason. You know, whether it's politics or sports or pop culture or whatever it is, uh, I, I do like to see kind of how things originate. You know, there's, there's this, it's out there, I can see it, I can form my own opinion. And then you just kind of watch how it unfolds and how div divisive some things get when it just doesn't need to get that divisive. And I think people just like to argue to argue on Twitter. So I don't try to step into that those waters so much, but I do like to see where the opinion is. And then I can form mine because if one is so ridiculous, it allows me then to form my opinion to kind of counter those people. And if some are just so hardcore in a different way or overly positive, then I'll maybe come in and be a little more snarky or whatever. So all that stuff kind of helps shape the ideas and opinions that I want. And, and there, there's, there are thoughtful ways to to make it happen. Now, there are times where I can be kind of a jerk, but but that's there's a thought behind it. And I just stand behind those opinions. And as you've probably learned and anybody that's been in the social media game for a long time, you can't... You should never back down from your statements um, unless it's so ridiculous and you are drunk, I guess, and you put something out that was just, uh, you know, impossible to, to, like, you just, just does not need to be out there. But, but I, so I had an incident and I learned this is a really valuable lesson where, um, 
in 2009, I was with the U.S. team. and I got a concussion against Panama in the quarterfinals in Philadelphia for the Gold Cup. And I went up for a header and the guy jumped late and hit me right in the temple. And I got knocked out cold. I landed on my face because I got knocked out. Even though I was still conscious, I had 20 minutes of post-impact amnesia. So I broke my thumb on the way down too because my whole body went limp. So I popped up and I, I recovered from that. And I, I could have gone home back to my club in Kansas City and just been with my wife and just relaxed and my daughter. Like, I want to stay with the team. It's only another four or five days. If we get to the final, we might play Mexico and blah, blah, blah. So we, I go with them to, to Philly or excuse me, Chicago and we beat Honduras or something to nothing. And then we, we play Mexico in the final. And before that game, we take a charter flight and Mexico's on the flight with us, which I, we thought were really weird. Yeah. They would be sharing this charter flight, you know, our biggest rivals. And then it's more probably more built up in the media, but you can still feel there's some animosity between the two teams. In that tournament, that's the tournament where uh, the Mexican manager kicked one of the Panamanian players on the sideline and he got suspended all the way to the final. So now he was available. So I told one of my buddies, oh, hey, guess what's happening? And at this point, I was kind of sharing. Like Twitter was really young and we were like, my account was a little bit bigger than his. And so we just tried to like one up each other on jokes with my account. So I said, hey, by the way, this is happening. You know, this guy's on the flight and he kicked somebody and he, he ended up writing this tweet, which I was fine with. I saw it, but didn't think anything of it. It was, you know, the Mexican coach is on the flight with us. I hope he doesn't kick me on my way past him, which is a gem of a tweet, by the way. Right. But it just, so then I turned off, I saw it. I'm like, all right, that's funny. You know, and then I turned off my phone because we had to get on the flight. Well, it's a three hour flight. When I landed, I had about 2000. I only had like 600 followers. Twitter was pretty relatively new at 2000. I tripled my followers just absolutely slaughtering me in Spanish uh, for the most part. And it led it led a sports center in Mexico, this tweet. It was just crazy news. Like people were hitting me up like, what is going on? And I'm like, oh my God. So I took it down. And I wish I, I, I regretted taking it down is ultimately the crux of, of telling you the story. Because if I just would have tweeted right after, it's just a joke. I have total respect for this man and I wish them the best of luck in the final. It would have diffused everything. But instead, I took it down. I, I had to explain to US Soccer, who was defending me, that it was my friend that actually did it. But they're like, what's well, your personal account? I'm like, no, no, but it's my friend. And I probably, I, sh- I saw it, but I shouldn't have approved it or I shouldn't have, I should have just taken it, whatever. And it just blew up and everybody took it and it was just a mess. And Bob Bradley was the coach who is so anti social media, but I had a concussion and wasn't playing and I had to apologize to, Mexican media the next day. Like I was the big story sitting there, not even training with the team because I couldn't. Uh, it was unreal. And I had to go on Mexican TV and apologize. Like, it was just a joke. <laughs> and it was insane. It was insane. And then we ended up getting beat 5 nothing in the final. <laughs> and I couldn't even do anything about it. Like I wasn't playing. So it was, it was a really valuable lesson in, in terms of how things can go viral quite quickly, how people can misinterpret what was clearly a joke. Not letting somebody else use your Twitter account, you know, even though it was a, still one of my favorite tweets of all time. And just figuring out and, and navigating that landscape. So anyway, I don't even know why we got onto that. But but for Twitter in particular, that's where I get a lot of my information. I don't get on Facebook much. Uh, Instagram isn't a place for that. If I go to any of those other places, it's just to kind of maybe see uh, a point of view that might be happening. Is there any media you consume or say books that you read in order for you to become better at what Good you question. do? Yeah, I just read uh, Phil Knight's new book about how Nike became to be. And I, I loved it because it was actually the part of his life that I wanted to know the most. Like, I didn't care. I mean, not to say it wasn't hard when Nike became huge and maintaining that, right? We can get into all about success. And, and for me, I enjoyed, when I look back at my career, I enjoyed get, trying to get to the top way more than trying to maintain 
staying at the top when everybody's gunning for you and everybody's looking at you in a different way, or at least that's how it feels. And I enjoyed that process. So, so for Phil to lay out his whole story about getting to the top, that was, I ate it up. I must have read that thing in three days. Reading those kind of books inspire me to kind of stay the course, you know, that you, that this is a grind. Like Nike didn't turn a profit for 15 years, but Nike's so ubiquitous with success that it's just, ah, that can't be true, you know? And, And I have, I'm the oldest of seven. So my youngest brother, he's 20 now. And when I was kind of at the peak of my success, let's say, and playing in the World Cup and all that stuff, uh, he was very impressionable. So all he knew of my story from when he kind of was aware of what was happening was just the success and being in video games and being on cereal boxes and all the other stuff that goes along with it and being sponsored by Adidas. And like, whoa, this guy's insane. What a, what a legend. He never saw that part of it. So when he started to play, I think he thought the game was going to come a little bit easier because he just assumed that for whatever reason. And, and a lot of people assume that, but but there's just no shortcuts, as I said before. And, and he just missed out on all the work and the kind of the anguish and the, and the adversity and the stress. And am I going to make it? It, it? Was this the right decision? I could have contributed in so many different ways to society. Is this the way I'm going to do it with a bunch of other grown men in small shorts kicking a ball around? Like it's, it's a big deal, but it's not at the same time. So I tried to use my powers for good when I was a player. And, and I intend to do the same once I feel like I'm in a good place to make that happen. Yeah, and I think it's an important insight and learning to pass on, Mm -hmm. especially in today's media landscape. Whether their kids wanted to become professional soccer players or successful at something else is that today, at least mostly of what we see in mainstream media, is Mm -hmm. very much the end Mm -hmm. product and all the glamour that comes with it. So I think these stories are important and to hear it from somebody like yourself and passing that on and understanding too that there's a process to everything, but then also understanding and Mm -hmm. trying to enjoy the lead up to that. Because, you know, once you stand at the top, it's not all all that glamorous Mm -hmm. all of a sudden. And then you got to set new goals and then reaching a different top. I remember when we were at the World Cup and I was like a surprise to make the team. Um, I ended up making the team. I got to play. It's funny because when you make the team... And this is just a side note, 2006. 2006. And when I made the team, I was buzzing. It was like the best day ever. You know, Bruce Arena's on SportsCenter, names the team. Nobody said anything to me up to that point. Um, Landon uh, sent me like a... It was an AOL instant message, AIM. That was back in the day. <laughs> and he says, hey, man, I'm, you know, maybe a couple hours before the announcement. Hey, man, I got great news. And, you know, he's in with Bruce. So I'm like, oh, yeah, what, what? You know, he goes... I just saved a bunch of money by switching to Geico on my car insurance. I'm like, he's such a dick, you know? So, but I think he knew he wouldn't, I don't think he sends that joke without knowing, but I'm like, until I hear from Bruce or somebody in the staff, there's just no way I'm going to take that as, as for sure I'm going, but I felt good about it. And I got named to the team and it was just, wow, I had done it. I had made the team. And then you realize, okay, I got three weeks before we actually go into camp. I don't want to get hurt. So you start to think about just playing a little smarter and not being so reckless. And then the camp, you're like, God, you kill yourself for 30 days or this crazy camp that you, you know, it's actually cool to make the World Cup team, but I'd really like to play in the World Cup. So I got that opportunity and played against Italy and Ghana. And uh, it was an incredible, incredible experience. And when I came back from the World Cup, or actually the, the day before, so I got to play and I thought I held my own. And I was really proud because Clinton Dempsey and I were two of the higher rated players um, after the tournament. And we were both MLS guys. You know, we didn't go to Europe and cut our teeth there where everybody thinks you have to go to be to be great. And I just, I, I'm obviously proof that that doesn't necessarily have to be. There's a lot of different paths to get to the top. And and that kind of an exit meeting where everybody's really disappointed, U.S. soccer president, Sunil Galati, kind of addresses the group and he shakes everybody's hand as we're walking out. And, and he gets to me and he goes... You know, four more years, we got a lot of work. 
you know, we got some work to do. So, you know, this is going to be a, this next four years. Let's get after it. And I took that going. I felt the pressure that all of a sudden I was being looked at as somebody that needs to be the guy for four years. And I, I didn't think I, I didn't take that information well. Uh, I had killed myself to get to this point. This was the apex of my career. I had done everything that, that people said I couldn't do. And I did it. And I held my own against some of the best players in the world. Yo, I could just drop the mic. I did like for me, what I wanted to do and set out to do, I did. So to then like have to do that all over again and for four more years and to fight and scratch. It wasn't that I wasn't up for it, but I just like, I don't know. And I came back from the World Cup and I was depressed. What am I supposed to do now? I did it. I, I, and, and, and it wasn't about anybody else. It was about for me. Like, I did it. I, I, can't, I can't believe I did it, but I did it. Uh, I, worked, I worked so hard and I've got nothing left to prove to myself. So that was a really interesting time. And I probably should have sought out professional help, frankly, to just talk to somebody about it. But I kept that in. How did it express itself? Just lackluster performances with my club. And I think most athletes have this uh, a bit of a hero complex. I needed to, I probably shouldn't need to take a break. And I wish my coach and in, in at the time would have embraced it a little bit more. But we were struggling because me and three or me, Josh Wolf and Eddie Johnson were all gone. Arguably our three top players, you know, his job's on the line. So he wanted us to get back as soon as possible. Now, Josh and Eddie just took a couple extra days and kind of got their family sorted out and decompressed. Well, I came straight back to Kansas City and played. And within five minutes, I'd scored an own goal. And I was like, ah, oh, this isn't how it's supposed to go. I'm supposed to be like the champion, you know. I'm, you know, and I got a great ovation, but we lost the game 3-2. And I didn't play particularly well. I didn't feel sharp. And that, that took a shot. Like that hit me hard too because I thought, man, I just playing a World Cup. Why, why isn't that translating automatically to me just being the guy? And then you just have to accept the fact that you, you still have to work. Like you, you don't get away from working. And that leads us back to the conversation of reaching that point or trying to reach that point as opposed to working out that transition. Like now I have to maintain. And now there's a certain perception about me as well. Oh, he's a World Cup player. I expect him to do this, this, and this. And, and you have to handle that as well, which you never had attached to you before. So there's a lot that goes with success. And I've learned along the way that there's more players that I played with that were probably more afraid of success than they were of failure. And because there's a lot of people that don't know how to coach you through success because a lot of people don't have that type of success. People are like, oh, you know, you think about it this way or handle it this way or whatever. But everybody has a pretty good idea how to handle failure. Everybody's failed along the way. But to have that kind of big success where all of a sudden you're getting more money and you're getting more people paying attention to you, there's not a lot of people with that type of experience. I'd like to shift gears here and ask you a little bit about your upbringing. Where did you grow up and what did your family situation look like? My parents met when they were 17. Uh, my mom can whistle louder than anybody I know. <laughs> and there's a pretty popular boulevard. Where was this? This was in Temple City, California, which is about, I'd say, 15 minutes southeast of the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. So a little suburb tucked into two major freeways. Um, you have to be from the area to know, but uh, probably 25 minutes uh, east of LA as well. So there's this major boulevard there called Rosemead. And my mom... You know, we're lower middle class kind of family, just scraping by on some apartments on a busy street, not doing great by any stretch of the imagination, but surviving. And she saw my dad driving by who had his windows rolled up in a car and she whistled so loud that he saw and turned around. Now, my dad, knowing him now, I was pretty ballsy of him to turn around. It's not really in his nature to do that. So he turned around and they met and they went out and he got my mom pregnant. And they had me when she was 18. Um, they broke up before I was born. 
So I've never known them as a couple, which knowing them both now too is definitely for the best. My mom got married when I was three and I live with my stepdad um, and, and my mom. And I have a brother and sister on that side. Uh, unfortunately, my, my stepdad passed away to melanoma at age 43. So that was really difficult. And it still impacts my family. Even How though old were you then? I was 23. And I was in San Jose playing at the time. And uh, it was tough. It's hard because I, it's, it's from a family role. Do you, do you, I was gone. I was out of the house. I'd been out of the house since I was 17, been pretty fiercely independent. I knew everything. I know what's going on. I'm the guy, blah, blah, blah. I'm sure you guys have already picked up on that through a lot of the stuff and how I'm talking. But um, it was, it was difficult and I didn't know, I, I wasn't around. So it was hard to really interact. And death obviously hits everybody differently. So how you handle it. You know, obviously it hurts my mom the most, but maybe it hurt my sister and my, my brother the most. And, and so it still follows them. It's like, a, I don't think it's as big of an anchor as it used to be, but it still weights them down. So that was a tough, difficult time for my family. Over my dad's side, I, he got married when I was 11 and I have three brothers and a sister on that side. They're all halvesies, but they're all super cool. And were you in, in touch with your father throughout? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And everybody had a great relationship. So I think my dad was quite wise. Um, I think my mom would come on here and say that she probably could have treated him a little better um, throughout that process. And Well, they were pretty young. Though. Very young. Yeah. You know, I had this realization and I don't know if it was before or after my stepdad passed away, but I was kind of a bit of a go-getter, always trying to push. And But I had this realization, like, why am I wired this way? Why do I always have to prove that I'm good enough? I think it's because that I didn't want my family, because I knew that there was a lot of pressure on my mom and my dad for keeping me or for even, you know, not aborting me or for throwing me up for adoption. That if I, the better I did as a person, the better they would be looked at for keeping me. Is there anything I should know about the place where you grew up in order to get to know you more? Kind of on a personal level, I understand that. Obviously, the family situation has Mm -hmm. had a huge impact. Yeah, I would say that I grew up in a community with great friends. I was in a place where my friends could kind of see that soccer meant something to me. And instead of, oh man, don't do that. Or, oh man, come on, just go have a beer with us tonight. Or, come on, go to the party. They were all very protective. Like, no, no, Jimmy's... There's something that he wants to do and we want to see him do it. I was fortunate that way where I had some very supportive friends that I still talk to and and to kind of grow up in that environment and to... In some ways, my mom was a... I was a latchkey kid. So, you know, my mom, I'd get off at three and I'd have a babysitter, but I would just go roam and go hang out in the neighborhood. And I'm glad that happened because now as a parent, I feel like I'm so on top of their schedule all the time. I just don't let them be. Now, New York... It, I say that New York seems seems more daunting, but my kids would be fine. You know, they, they'd figure it out. And, you know, obviously having young girls, that adds another layer of complication and, and things because as the joke goes, you know, if you have a boy, you, you worry about one penis, you know, but if you have a girl, you worry about a mil- million penises, you know, so it's... Uh, <laughs> that's the first time I've heard that. never heard that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, uh, you know, I got two girls, that's, that's two million penises I'm worrying about. So it's, uh, you know, and there's a lot of sketchy people out there. So you just, I don't know, you get ahead of yourself. But as being a boy in this neighborhood that... I don't think we could really even afford the mortgage. We were paycheck to paycheck, but they wanted to get us into Temple City because they had good schools and, uh, you know, it just kind of worked out. So I had a really safe, non-threatening growing up. My, my dad was around all the time. Everybody was really positive. If there was anything happening behind the scenes, I never saw it. And it was, uh, it was good. It was as suburban as I guess suburban gets. What did they do for a living back then? My mom's like secretarial stuff. That hasn't changed. She got her high school, high school diploma, but never went to college. And my dad did construction. Didn't have a high school diploma. 
Uh, was a musician for a long time. Unfortunately, just had a stroke about six months ago. Doesn't have health insurance. So that adds a, uh, it's a little pretty heavy right now. So we're working through that because he can't work at the moment and we'll figure out what's going to happen with him. But so, yeah, that's like kind of the next phase of, of being a, a kid is that your parents take care of you and then you need to take care of them. What's the most important advice they gave you? They always made sure they really were hands off. And I thought that was important because I needed to want it. I didn't need them to want it for me. And every time I came back from practice or a game, the number one question was always, did you have fun? And that was it. And that would lead me into like probably talking about making this mistake and working through that. And, and so that was probably the best thing they could have told me. It wasn't about, oh, how did you miss that pass? Or God, you just lost your scholarship or any of that BS, right? It was just, yeah, you have a good time. So my dad got peppered and my mom, I'm sure along the way, you know, how did Jimmy make it to become a professional athlete? And I think they're like, go ask Jimmy. He just, he just worked harder than everybody else. For the United States. Landon sends it in. The header and it's into the back of the net. The United States strikes. And it's Jimmy Conrad. Jimmy Conrad finds the net. One to nothing USA. What was the moment when you realized that you had a certain talent and they might have a shot at becoming a professional? I always was one of the better players, I guess, on my team. I was a little bit bigger than everybody else. And I don't know, the game just seemed to come a little bit easier uh, in some ways. When I did play up when I was really young, I play, I was seven playing up with eights. And I, apparently my grandpa, who was from Denmark and who taught me uh, how to play the game, just kicked the ball with me a lot. He would, my dad would tell me he'd come back all disgruntled, like Jimmy's lost it. Because I, I, when I was seven or six, I was scoring three goals a game and dominating. And then I played up a year the next year and I, it was just a little bit harder. The game's a little bit quicker. And my grandfather was like, yeah, he lost it. You know, he just doesn't have it anymore. My dad's like, are you insane? He's like eight, you know? <laughs> I always felt like as I was growing up, there was no professional league to aspire to. But I used to go to UCLA men's soccer games. Siggy Schmidt was the coach. Brad Friedel was there. Kobe Jones, uh, a lot of Joe Maxmore, a lot of, a lot of names that people are familiar with or if they know any U.S. soccer history should be familiar with. So that was my professional team. And so I had big aspirations to, to go there. And because it was a springboard to better opportunities. But even if I had just finished my career at UCLA, I would have felt pretty satisfied with my career. And when I came out of high school, I was highly touted. Um, I, th- I thought I had a nice buzz about me. I played on a really good club team. My high school team was, was pretty good. I had kind of lifted them into greater heights. Uh, I was a center mid at the time and I had I made an all high school all-star team and that coach was, was so impressed with me for whatever reason in the two games, little friendly games that I played that he suggested, he called UCLA cold for me and said, hey, you should really look at this kid. And UCLA, whether they did or didn't do their homework, sent me a letter saying, hey, if you can get into school, we'll give you a tryout, but we're not going to give you any money or offer you or help you get in. So I wish I would save that letter. So I went down and ended up going to San Diego State. I had a college co- or my club coach called them cold and said, hey, you should give Jimmy a chance and he gave me books and, and a little bit of money for dorm, but never has seen me play. Like what kind of coach does that? But apparently trusted my club coach is uh, assessment enough to give me a shot. And I played there for two years and the coach there, uh, Chuck Clegg, there was 10 of us that came in as freshmen. So it was like kind of an upheaval. And um, eight of us wanted to transfer after year, year two, after our sophomore years. And I think we kind of got ourselves into a frenzy about how he's not a good coach and all this stuff and whatever. And so I just started cold calling colleges, including UCLA, and let them know that I'm looking to move and and wanted some more playing time and just kind of wanted something different. And I talked to Northridge. They were going to give me a full ride, had that pretty much buttoned up. And I talked to UCLA and I sent them a video like, hey, we couldn't make you out. I didn't know who you were because it was San Diego State against UCLA. We lost four nothing. He's like, I don't know which guy you were. And I thought he played okay, but we just got overran by a better team. 
So what ended up happening was Danny Califf played for the men's national team or ended up playing for the men's national team. And, and he was a highly touted recruit that they wanted. At that point, I'm playing in the back. And he went to Maryland instead. And so Ziggy called me after I pretty much agreed verbally to go to Northridge. Like, hey, listen, uh, if you still want to come, we'll get you into school. Uh, we're not going to give you any money, but we'll get you in. You can try out for the team. I usually give people two days. I'll give you a week. I was like, I'm in. I was so excited. Like that was my dream school. I wanted to go there. And I thought, okay, well, I didn't redshirt. So, you know, you just kind of rationalize and validate however, like how <laughs> potential failure is going to go. Like, well, okay, if I don't make the team this year one, I'll train, I'll just train my ass off and I'll make sure I make it in year two. That'll be like my redshirt year. So I had it all figured out in my head. I'm going to go. And, and my aunt said she'd help pay for the school because we couldn't afford it. And so it was all kind of working out. So I got my week and I made the team. Absolutely buzzing. I was a, I started the first game. So I was the first walk on to start since Kobe Jones. Oh, he was a walk on too. He was. Yeah. And so I played okay to start. And then I kind of got into my rut where I got a little uncomfortable where, ah, oh, man, I don't, am I good enough to be here? As some of my mom has too. Like, I don't know if I'm good enough. I, I didn't go the traditional route. I didn't get the scholarship. I'm beating out these guys right now and, and didn't end up believing in myself enough. But I did believe in myself enough to know after a while when I was sitting on the bench, like I deserve to be out here. I train every day. I train hard. I'm, I'm playing better than these other guys. And at that point, uh, I think the coaches and the coaching staff had made promises to families like, hey, your kid's going to get X amount of games. And so if that came, I was always the guy that was sitting on the bench. I was basically not really starting. But at that point, MLS had started. So my first year at UCLA, MLS had started. So all of a sudden, you it was a good time because you're like, hey, there's, there's opportunity beyond this UCLA thing. So I'm now me tying this in. And... My senior year, again, I was just start, not start, never really putting my stamp on things. And we had a couple All-Americans and, you know, in the back and, and especially my junior year. And my senior year, we had senior day and it was me and four other guys. And the, all the other four seniors got to play 90 minutes, but I didn't. And I didn't get any minutes like the whole season. I was like, why, why am I the one that's getting sacrificed? Like, this should be the day that you let me just run around. We, we were up like four nothing and just let me enjoy it. My family's here. This could be my last ever, you know, game, even though we're going to play in the NCAAs, I wasn't starting. This could be my last game playing in front of them. So I was really emotional and he took me out and I still, I still don't forgive Ziggy Schmidt for that. Just because he just, it didn't seem like he understood or took it into consideration. Well, five minutes into the first NCAA game, uh, the guy that started in front of me tore his knee. So I played the rest. We won the national championship. I was like, ah, this is it. I'm going, I'm going to get drafted, baby. This is not just winning the national. I'm getting drafted. There's only like, there's no other higher thing we could win in college. Like I'm totally getting drafted. One of the seniors, the other four guys got drafted and I didn't. And I was like, man, what, what? I don't know. I don't, you know, and I, I have since put together again that I think, and maybe this is me rationalizing. This is still some speculation, but. And then somebody gave me this speculation that's maybe in the know, but that Ziggy had made promises to the families that he recruited, that he actually recruited, hey, I'm going to get your kid drafted, or I'm going to do everything I can to get your kid drafted. Whereas he made no promises to me or my family. So I was kind of last on the list to take care of. And he ended up coming back and, and taking care of me when I didn't get drafted, because I don't know if he thought I was or wasn't, but he got me to get to train with the Galaxy. So again, I get to go kind of in a walk-on situation where I'm very comfortable now with the walk-on situation of, all right, let me see who's around me, see what the level is. And then I would go train with the Galaxy and then I'd go home and work on my game, work on my game, work on my game. And then again, Octavio Zambrano was the coach. And then at that point, so I guess to kind of tie into your question, I got a taste of what the professional life looked like and I loved it. Like you could just get to trick. That's it. You get paid to come out here like in the morning and just kick the ball around. I'm in. Like this is it. This is the life that I want. So you kind of got to see it, and that really helped me kind of envision what my life would look like. And like these guys would get big boxes from Nike or Adidas, and with their names on the cleats. And I'm like, whoa, this is the world. Who were some of the guys that you looked up to on that team? Well, uh, ended up being uh, Robin Frazier, who ended up being my coach at Chivas, um, who I played against. It was him and I as finalists for the Defender of the Year award, no four, and he won, and I didn't. I was like, bastard. 
But um, and then he became my coach, and now he's an assistant in Toronto, and really, really good guy, and we're we're really good friends. So I looked up to him a lot, uh, Mauricio Cienfuegos, any of those guys. Danny Pena was like the that guy, uh, so hard tackler, and just how serious he was. And you just you took a little, you actually took a little something from everybody. Their approach to the game, like the younger players that did get drafted but don't really know their way. Like I didn't have that pressure, so there was something beneficial about not having that pressure right away and any expectations. I could just kind of come in and take it all in without any anybody thinking about what I can or can't do. And it allowed me to... All I had to go... I could only go up. So Octavio ended up like, hey, man, you're playing really well. We're going to bring you to preseason. Hey, I'm going to call you, you know? So my goalkeeper at UCLA got drafted the Galaxy, Matt Reese. He ended up playing 13, 14 years, uh, mainly with New England Revolution. And he thought I was going. So we all went back. He went back to UCLA a couple hours early. And then as I was leaving... They pulled me aside and said, hey, actually, we don't know yet if we can take you or not. And they took all my bag, all my gear, everything. I was buzzing. I was ready to go into the car, tell my family, everything. Well, Reese had already left and told everybody at UCLA that I was going. I then had to wait and not say anything until this phone call. Well, they don't even call me. So I called the offices like, oh, yeah, yeah you're not going. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. And I'm just shattered. I mean, just like melted to the floor. And so what do you do? You know, I didn't... And I had to go tell everybody now, all my peers, that actually I'm not going. And it's just like a double crushing blow. So I was so close and it just didn't end up working out. Like the galaxy just would not find a way to help work with me at all. And I thought I was training fine. And, and, and I think the guys there could see that I had something that was worth. But then they, they, at that time, they were, uh, MLS had A-League affiliates. They had minor league teams. So I went down to San Diego. I, pay, I played. I got $800 a month. I slept on floors. I ate top ramen. And I played 30 games in six months. We played against Nakaxa and Toluca and all these teams. It was great. And I, I then had to decide, is this really what I want? You know, is this... Do I love it because I love it? Is it about the money? What am I playing for? And I loved... I just wanted to play. And, and to kind of get tied back into what we were saying earlier is just... I love to create. I love to be... Today's a new day to get better. I, I can get better than I was the day before. And I, I really... I love, love that approach. And that allowed me to do that. And then the next year I signed... Or in the off season, I had a, I signed with San Jose. Uh, the Galaxy then, once they found out San Jose wanted to sign me, of course, wanted to sign me. And I thought that was total BS. So I went with San Jose and uh, played four years there, eight years in Kansas City and played the national team and captained the national team and had beyond anything I ever could have imagined. Of course, you want that, but you never know if it's really going to happen or not. And yeah, it's crazy. It's a crazy... It's like I'm talking about somebody else at this point. Tell me about the MLS of that time. What's something that people today who watch the MLS are involved in and around the MLS? What should they know? Well, I would say from a level standpoint, because there weren't that many teams, the, I thought the quality was quite high. I thought there was a... As the, as the league expanded, the, there was a dilution of talent. So you went from a DC United team that were all national teamers. Their whole starting lineup. You had Tony Santa, John Harks, Jeff Agus, Marco Echeverri, all Jaime Moreno. I mean, just guys, unbelievable. So you, you go up against those guys and you're like, this is probably one of the best MLS teams of all time. You got Bruce Arena coaching them, Eddie Pope. I mean, just, just so many guys. And then as the, the league got bigger, it just, well, maybe you'd have four of those guys on every team. So I thought the level was quite good. And, and at that time, there was no, you had to make the 18. There was no, extra roster spots. You had to make the 18. You could train with a team all you want, but you had to be in the 18 to get a contract. So I earned that in San Jose and uh, and I made $24,000 my first year. Now, some guys make that in a day, but that's what I made. And I had $300 to my bank account at the end of the year. And I went to Vegas, baby, and I hit $1,500 <laughs> in craps. is the best. That was like that tripled my... Uh, quintupled my uh, my earnings at that point. But um, it, was, uh, it was an incredible experience because as much as I was growing as a player... This league was growing too and still trying to figure itself out. And that was year three. No, year four of MLS. So to give paint a picture, we went to Spartan Stadium where 
the San Jose State University's campus, where it's off campus, the stadium. But they had built the San Jose Clash at the time, uh, like a makeshift locker room. It was really tiny. It was really small. Well, we, we weren't allowed to train on any of the, the fields. So we had to go to the, to the locker room, just hear the 15-minute, hey, guys, this is what we're doing at training today, something to think about. Here's our opponent for the weekend, whatever. And then get in our cars and then drive 30 minutes down to Morgan Hill to train. Basically, we were, there was no other people there because kids were in school, but it was basically, you know, just a glorified youth tournament area and just play on like one of their nicer fields. And that was it. And then we'd have to drive sweaty all the way back up to the locker room and then get your treatment. It was a nightmare. It was a nightmare and not professional. And then, then you add the social element where you'd go out at night and, oh man, you're a professional athlete. Well, no, I make $24,000. I'm not, yeah, I guess I am entitled, but I'm not getting paid like a, like the perception of a professional athlete. So if you go out with a girl or whatever, I mean, there's, you're supposed to buy dinner and like, yo, I don't, I don't have the money to buy, like go out and take in. You just can't, you know, you go into the, you know, oh yeah, there's some earthquakes or clash players here. Yeah. Everybody's like, oh, cool. That's great. And then people just, I think just like, yeah, you're buying drinks, right? You know, you're like, ah, no, I'm not buying anything. I'm going to just drink one. I'm, I'm the designated driver tonight, everybody. And you just make up all kinds of crazy stuff so that you wouldn't get caught, uh, having to kind of lead a lie what a professional athlete does and how they live their life. And there was a lot of elements to it that were, were in. And I shared a place with one of my teammates. Again, we're not eating much more than top ramen and you're expected to be a top professional and you just, there's just no way you can do that on that salary and you'd have to supplement your income. And so instead of working on your game in the afternoon, you had to go coach a team to, to survive. And, and, and thankfully that's changed, but they're, they're not too far away from that either. I mean, it's not, I mean, some of them, yeah. I mean, they're, I mean, they're making 70 or 80, I think is the minimum now. And that's, that's a livable wage for sure. But they don't have to go in the afternoons to go find additional income. But uh, yeah, there's still a lot of growing to do for sure in, in a lot of different ways. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You had a, I don't know if it's random, but you had a little spell over in Poland. I did, with yeah. the Lech Poznan. Lech Poznan, yeah. How did that come about? So one of my teammates, uh, Wojtek Krakowiak, who was a Herman Award winner at Clemson, he got drafted into San Jose. And at that point, the season ended. We, we didn't, that was the worst year in 2001. We got knocked out like mid-September. And we're not supposed to report till January. I mean, it, I mean they, we would have trained and probably done an off-season tour or whatever just to play a couple more games. But, but at that point... There was nothing competitive because the league was so small and they didn't have enough games. So he had already set up, unbeknownst to me, a chance to go over to Poznan and play. He knew the coaching staff and they were looking for players and, you know, they were fighting relegation and, and just needed some help. There was no budget there. So the league was like, yeah, you can go on loan. And, and they basically said, can we get to take a couple other players? So it was me and Ian Russell. And at first I was reluctant. I'm like, Poland's, I mean, what am I going to get out of that? You know, and then the older guys on the team, like, go. 
it's a life experience. It's going to be something you've never experienced before. Go do it. Have fun. Enjoy it. Get better at your craft. So I embraced it. I was right after my stepdad had passed. So I had a little bit of, I don't know if I want to leave my family at this point, but it was good for me to break away and, and another opportunity to kind of figure out what I'm about and, and what I'm playing and, and what I'm doing and, and what do I stand for. And uh, I learned a lot in those four months. I played 14 games. I played in their cup. You got a little of that promotion relegation taste. Uh, if we won at home, uh, drinks were free around the city. If you lost, you if you got seen out you are like having fun they would beat you up essentially and uh, the russian mob was was quite prominent in poznan at the time and maybe still is i don't know in terms of what, what was it like a fan group of, of the team or well, no there was like a there was definitely russian mafia just floating around in certain areas and, and we got told just to just don't give those guys any trouble and if they give you trouble just walk away don't don't instigate and so you'd see them around just doing whatever the hell they wanted it was actually pretty intense i'd never seen anything like it but yeah there was a there's a supporters group awesome but they're massive guys and they are serious so we had one game where uh, we were up one nothing with about 10 minutes left at home pretty much pretty comfortably and then all of a sudden our goalkeeper made some pretty bad errors that were unlike him at that time and we lost 2-1 and this i told this story honestly like three weeks ago and i was like you know what it might have been he might have uh, match fixed I, mean, i had never put that together before but the goals he gave up were so bad That I just thought, oh, you know, it's just a bad five minutes. But now, like, maybe he did. Maybe he was on the take. And so what happened was you go right out the tunnel and you go like across this little tiny street and then you'd go upstairs into this locker room, which is our locker room. And the only guys, were like old guys that played for the club were the ones that pretend. I mean, they're not going to do anything, these, these big supporters. And maybe 15 to 20 of them came to go look for the goalkeeper. I'm going to beat the shit out of them. I'm like, what is happening here? This is like, people were freaking out. They, they find the goalkeeper. He's in the shower. He locked himself in like the closet shower. He's crying. They're like trying to get into him and beat him up. And I'm like, well, I don't know what is going on, but I kind of love it. I love that they care this much. Uh, and, and it was, it was a kind of fandom that, that I hadn't seen before and, and that I loved. I, I love the passion. I mean, obviously the violence. I, I don't need the violence, but I love that there's that. This means something to us. Um, being a supporter means something to us. And I've since learned that there's different ways to slice that. And sometimes being a supporter is like just being about the supporter. And, and, but still being a part of something special and tying it into a team. Outside of that, that one crazy moment, I was like, man, this is intense. And, and I don't get this in the States, you know, like at any level, in any sport. This isn't just uh, isolated to soccer. It's, uh, we're just, I feel like Americans in general just want to say that they were at that sporting event, but they aren't, they aren't as engaged in actually what's happening unless it's like a playoff game or, You know, everybody's in that moment. It's, it's so big. Everybody's paying attention, like a Super Bowl or a World Series or whatever. But, but um, more often than not, when I was growing up, like you just go to a Lakers game. But to say you went to a Lakers game, it wasn't because you were actually so invested in the team, you know. So it was a different kind of fandom and, and I appreciated it. And I became a better player because Americans, I got spit on. I got all kinds punched. Uh, that stuff never had happened to me before. And there's nobody out there to protect you. The referee's not going to protect you. So you had to, I had to toughen up and my skin got a lot thicker and I read a lot of books and uh, just kept to myself because Wojtek had family. Ian Russell was looking for girls. Uh, and I was like, I'm just going to kick it and read. And, and I did a lot of that and, and tried to, the hard part was I couldn't work on my game. It was so cold. And they were so hyper-specific about when you worked out, when you didn't. That I was bummed that I didn't get that opportunity, but I grew in a lot of different ways. After that in your career, did you get any other either opportunities or were you trying to get to Europe after that at some point? I think Europe was a bit elusive for me. Uh, I was a bit of a late bloomer when I really came into my own. So that never timed out with my con when my contracts were ending. 
And I didn't have an agent that would, was working on my behalf. Um, he had a lot of clients and he would package a lot of us together. And who he, was your agent? It was Richard Motzkin, who, um, you know, in some ways I thought he did, he did well, but in other ways he just cared about his, the guys that made him money. I mean, I made 40K or whatever at the time, 50K. I mean, he's not really making anything off of me. So a lot of his attention naturally goes to Landon Donovan and Eddie Johnson and his, you know, the guys that he's getting most of his money from and providing for his family. And there was only maybe not even a handful of agents right, uh, right. around. And at that point, he kind of started off. I was, I think, one of his early guys. And then he just got bigger and bigger. But you don't really know how many people he's signing. You just know that he's got a few more. And then you start to hear that, oh, you got Motskin too. Oh, you got Motskin too. And you're like, that's, that's a lot of people. you know. And, and I think that he just got so big so fast that the personal attention and, and really caring and knowing what, what you wanted and where you were going. So, you know, he... Uh, He lied to my face in 06 at the World Cup. He said that if I got to play and played well, that he'd help me find a team in Europe. I was 29 at the time. So I thought I could provide it a couple of good years somewhere at a solid club. And I played well and he didn't have anything. He didn't wasn't giving anything out to agents, wasn't doing anything to work on my behalf. And I was buzzing. I'm like, all right, cool. I, it didn't go well for the team, but I thought I held my own. And I thought I warranted enough to, to get a look or sniff from somebody. So... He and my wife was sitting in there too, so he lied to both of us. And he, we came back, and he's like, "Uh, I don't have anything." I'm like, "What do you mean? You, you sat down and talked to us and said that if I played and played, you just didn't. He didn't think I'd play. He just didn't think I was good enough to play." And so he, I was like, "I can't, I can't keep you anymore. I just can't. You're full of it, you know." And I was really upset. I was hurt that you know all this work, and I thought this guy had my back, and he didn't have my back. So I switched uh, to Lyle York's, like his biggest competitor at the time. And I'm friendly with all these guys now, and they they know where I stand, and I'm I'm sure that they had opportunity, they would try to defend themselves. But I went to Lyle and immediately got some interest from England and Hanover in Germany with Steve Cherundolo and uh, Rosenborg in Norway, which I definitely could have gone there. Like they agreed to my transfer fee. I was a million dollars transfer fee, and I if it, it, the best part was that that morning when I, when I woke up, I felt like a million bucks, and it was true. That's my joke, but so, um, so I could have gone to Rosenborg. I was talking to the sporting director, like, "Hey, you, I hope you're not using us as a tool to get opportunities somewhere else." And I really wasn't, but I really uh, Hanover was on the horizon too, and and I couldn't get my work permit to go to England. Like Southampton was interested, and I just didn't. It was going to take a lot for me to get my work permit, uh, and a lot of time, I think, more than anything else. So I'm like, "All right, let's focus on the Bundesliga." And Steve, who is you know the mayor of that city, and and the team loved him was really pushing hard for me to come and like, well, we have a 19-year-old center back that we think can do it. And we want to maybe get this forward from Rangers and like, all right, fine. And they were going to fly me over and to get my physical. And then they decided to go with the forward from Rangers who never panned out anyway. And the 19-year-old center back sucked. And it would have been an amazing life experience. But but so I just used that as a tool to get a better contract with MLS. Um, the Rosenborg thing kind of fell through because I waited so long the last minute for, um, for Hanover to come through. And of course, Rosenborg, six months later, was playing against Chelsea in the Champions League. And you're like, eh, yeah, I, they, they were a powerhouse. I should have went to Rosenborg. Work, you know, and and that could have been a springboard. You know, you do one season there, and you can get on somewhere else. But at that time, too, my wife was going through law school, and you just there's a lot of things you're balancing when you when you're making these types of decisions, and it's not just strictly about you. And and if it is, and that's a bit of a problem. But as we both know, you know, and and Jose Mourinho has done it for years. You know, when he takes the wives out for dinner before season starts, like you have to make it about him. You have to make it about the team. You have to do, you have to, you have to sacrifice. And, and he tries to build rapport, uh, with, with the females, the ones that are actually giving the grief or whatever it is behind the scenes. Because if the guys feel light and they feel like they're supported at home, then they're going to play better. And, and I get that. But at the same time, I'm built in a way where I like to, I think I've mentioned a few times, win-win situations. And that doesn't just 
me and like a brand. It's me and my wife and it's me and my daughters. And how are we all building positive things that we're both feeling good about? So I wanted to make sure that she felt supported and that I, she wasn't ready to make a jump to Europe. And, and in hindsight, yeah, I think she would have been like, oh, we should have just done it because she's tired of being a lawyer now. But at the time, you know, obviously it meant a lot for her to do what she was doing. And I didn't want her to think that I was only strictly thinking about myself. Tell me about the first call up and sort of your career within the national team and, and your place within it. Yeah, I, would, I didn't like Bruce Arena for a really long time. Uh, I just thought, man, why am I not getting a sniff? I thought I had done some things that had warranted consideration and that some of the players that he was calling in, I thought that I was comparable with. And then I was when I was with San Jose, I, just, just, I thought, yeah, maybe not for a World Cup qualifier, but maybe for a January camp or whatever. And it just never happened. And I got to the point where I just didn't think it was ever going to happen, uh, even though I was still a young buck, let's say at 26. But you and I both know this is pretty much a young man's game. If you're going to get your sniff with the national team, it happens at 22, 23. Uh, maybe for center backs, it's a little bit older. But I had a guy in front of me when I got tra- traded to Kansas City nicknamed Nick Garcia, who unwittingly be- became a very big motivating factor for me because I got to see him every day and I, I got to be better than him. I have to be better than him every single day. I need to uh, outrun him every single day. I got to do everything better than him because if Bruce is looking at Kansas City, I want him to think of me and not Nick Garcia. So I use uh, Nick as a very big motivating tool. I don't think I've ever said that publicly before. And if he ever hears this, well, now he'll know. But what happened was at the end of 04, there was a a strike. The US players uh, went on strike. So Bruce and the staff were calling up guys that had never been capped before to come in potentially to play in this first uh, World Cup qualifier against Trinidad and Tobago that just they needed players and you know we obviously got a lot of pressure saying hey don't don't do it don't break the line stick together uh you know if you're good enough you'll get your opportunity so that was my first real interaction with Bruce Arena so he left me a message I didn't answer it I called him back I said hey Bruce you know, as much as I would love to come in and, and represent the country and, and at least to be trained um, wearing the U.S. jersey, you know, I just don't just don't think it's in my best interest to betray the other guys that are standing up for something they believe in. Um, I hope the opportunity happens one day, but it, it just doesn't. I don't know. And he's like, "No, I understand. Uh, thank you for your time, and you know, maybe we'll maybe that'll happen. You know, whatever. Kind of just normal pleasantry on the way out. I'm sure he had 50 of those phone calls. So what happened? So that was December of '04, and then in January of '05. Uh, Danny Califf once again comes into my life and he was supposed to go into camp and he left to leave MLS to go play overseas. I think maybe Randers and, and Denmark. Yeah. And he was just going to go use the transfer window to go train with a bunch of teams. So they needed a center back and I got called in. So thank you, Danny Califf. There's a couple opportunities that I've, that he turned down that I took advantage of. So I went in and so did Nick Garcia. And really, I didn't get overwhelmed by the moment. I've been preparing for this camp my whole life. I've been looking forward to this. All the work that I put in behind the scenes, it was all coming down to this. And the pressure, it didn't feel like there was any pressure. Like I didn't have anything to lose because I never expected to be here in the first place. I knew that I got called in kind of late. Um, again, I was playing with a little bit with house money. Uh, very similar to when I went and trained with the Galaxy. Like Nobody expects me to do anything. So let's just enjoy it and push as much as possible. So I, in a really weird way, I was completely relaxed. My main focus was, I just want to be better than Nick Garcia. That was it. I didn't have any other 
thought, I just want Bruce to think of me instead of him when he thinks of Ken. That was it. I had it. It was so simple in my goal that it didn't overcomplicate it. That when we ran, I mean, I, Nick was in great shape and I would not let him beat me at anything. So when we did the beep test or whatever, he ran a certain length. I ran one more and then I stopped because I was dead. But I was like, I'm not going to let Nick beat me. I'm not going to tie him. I'm going to outrun him. They probably had no idea, but it, I'm sure it looked like I was busting my ass. And I played really, really well too. I just played simple. I played within myself and I had a good showing. I had a good couple of weeks. And at, then I would start taking these little steps. So after those three weeks, I got called into... I didn't play, but I was part of the team that went down to Trinidad and Tobago. And at this point, I'm one of the... And now I'm about to turn 27. So I'm one of the older guys there. Like, you know, I'm looking at the younger guys that already have like 50 caps or whatever. And like, man, that must be pretty cool. And I'm watching Eddie Pope prepare and he's drinking pickle juice in the little tiny locker room before this big qualifier. And I've got to train. You know, I did all the stuff, but I didn't make the final 18, but he took 23 players. So I'm sitting in the stands watching the game like, this is the best. You know, I love this. So I was just eating it all up and never, never let it get. I, I just enjoyed every step. I never felt like it was pressure, you know, and it, it didn't start to feel like pressure to me until I had already done it. And then I had to try to do it again. And that's where I started to feel a lot of pressure. And I mean, we could, we could talk about that for another hour in terms of the psychological uh, impact of that and, and why I didn't handle that as well as the other way. But I think a lot of people are built the same way. Take me through the process and the decision that led to you retiring from the game. So uh, I had a concussion a really bad one against Panama, I referenced earlier. Yeah. And that one put me out for about six weeks. And ever since that moment, the concussion started to come a little easier. And it wouldn't take as much for me to like, ah, I don't feel right. And I had a better understanding, obviously, the science and the doctors became better and more knowledgeable about symptoms um, and what to look for. And so I started to get more of those symptoms for less uh, and, and less of an impact or whatever. So I told my wife that if I ever suffered a bad one where like I kind of blacked out or whatever, I would stop. And I had some inklings of that at my end of my time with, with Kansas City in 2010. But then I had about three or four months off and I felt great going into the preseason. At that point, I'd switched to Chivas USA. Robin was taking over. I'm from LA. It's a LA-based team. I get to like basically play out my career in front of my family, which is cool. And the second game of the year, we're down one nothing to Colorado Rapids at the Home Depot Center, now known as the StubHub Center. Just getting back to my hero complex, tried to go up on a corner, tried to probably do a little bit more than I should have, uh, to do anything that I could to show that I was I care and I wanted to win this game. So I went up for a header and went pretty aggressively up with the goalkeeper, Matt Pickens, and he missed the ball and punched the back of my head. And I blacked out for three seconds, four seconds, but enough to be like, all right, that wasn't good. But I stayed in the game. I didn't feel good for the next five minutes. So Pablo Mastriani, I think, got hurt. So that gave me a little bit of time to get my bearings. And uh, I stayed in. There's only about 10 minutes left. I'm like, I'm going to do it. Within three or four minutes, they brought in Connor Casey, who's a beast, just to kind of kill off the game. And him and I hit heads. And I'm like, oh, man, like that, that's the, like the worst thing you can do is hit your head again after you've already suffered a concussion. So I knew that it was not good. So I went and told the doctor and I passed the test, the immediate test afterwards. You know, they held me out. Um, we had a game, like an Open Cup game in Portland a couple days later. And I really wanted to go because I never had the chance to play in Portland in, in, in like an MLS way. I did it when I was playing in the A-League. But uh, the fan sport's a little bit different now. So I was a little bummed to miss that because all my friends at Adidas and everybody were up there. And, and so I wasn't going to get to see them. And I just went through. I was like, you know, I got this headache that I can't shake. So three months of that, you know, my wife's like, hey, you know, you, you, you said this. And I, I said, no, I know I said it, but it's a little bit harder when it actually comes to fruition. Um, I'm giving up something that I've done my whole life. So the headache just didn't subside. And the people that were on that team, so Robin, Greg Vanny was the assistant, uh, Dan Kalichman, all these guys that were the defenders I looked up to when I was first training with the Galaxy were like, hey, man, 
I don't know if you know what CTE is, but you might want to look into it, read about it. It's just not worth it. You know, when I was 34, I'm not going to get called into the national team anymore. Uh, Chivas was a um, work in progress. You know, it wasn't like going to happen. The, the team has since folded. Um, so there was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes as well. And it just wasn't worth it. I just had my second daughter. And so I, I bagged it and I retired and I kind of became a de facto assistant coach. Um, they honored paying me for the rest of the year. And, um, uh, and it was tough when I, they, not that they made the decision for me, but, they basically said, we're not going to, we're not going to play you anymore. And I was like trying to come up with ideas. Hey, listen, I just, I won't go for headers on goal kicks, you know, cause those are bad. And I'll just stay back on corners. And they're like, well, what about marking somebody? I'm like, I'll just stay on the post, you know, be like our biggest guy who knows how to head better than anybody else. No, 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 I get it, but I can still be on the field and lead. I think I can help. And yeah, they just were like, no, you're an idiot. Like if those are the ideas you're coming up with, like this is the worst ideas ever. But for me in my mind, I'm like, I'm just trying to think of something that I could do and be, and be um, helpful to the team. And so they told me that that, that was it, that. And I just lost it, man. I just like melted. We call, I tried to call my wife and I got back up to the parking lot. And she just thought like I got in a bad car accident or something had happened to like my family members because I was just distraught. And I was probably depressed. I mean, I'm probably taking a big jump here, but I was depressed probably for a year afterwards because your identity, the only thing you know and the only thing that people know you as is as this person, this soccer player, this, um, you know, kind of larger than life professional athlete that's lived this cool life. And now you don't live that cool life anymore. And, and so as much as you, people identify, you identify yourself as that as well. And so you're dealing with how you're feeling and also the perception that you think is happening where most people don't care. Like now that I'm on the other side of it and I'm doing something else that I'm interested in and passionate about, like people just want you to be cool and be happy. Like they don't care if you're a soccer player or not. You know, they just want you, they like, they like you for you. And so it takes a while to understand that and to, to kind of distance or figure out like, who likes you for you. And, and not that anybody was using you, but just, you know, because I just don't think we're professional athletes that have a posse or anything like that and don't make enough money to kind of attract that unnecessary attention as it were. But so yeah, it was interesting, an interesting time. And I never sought out professional help. You know, in moments I probably should just talk to somebody. I think it came out in different ways and my wife was very supportive and so were my family, but it's just... You know, the guys I talk to now and I helped Heath Pierce kind of transition from playing to what he's doing now. And I'm, I'm talking to Kenny Cooper, who's on the precipice of trying to decide what he wants to do. And, and I think it's important for us guys that have been through it to not necessarily hold the hands of the other guys, but let them know that, that we're here for them if they need it, that we've been through it, that it, it does suck. They should just acknowledge that don't fight it. You know, yeah, it does. It's, it's everything you ever worked for. And now it's gone, but. There's so many more beautiful things out there for you to accomplish as well. And, and it wants, we're such goal oriented guys that, that if you give us a goal and something to focus on, we'll be fine. But, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to find what that goal is. And a lot of guys don't, they're like, oh, I guess I'll just coach. And, and I'm glad that they do because we need that, that expertise to trickle back down into the system. But, but there are moments where I think guys can, can go above and beyond that and, and do more special things that were even more meaningful than being a soccer player. Yikes. Well-placed ball, Berbatov to equalize, taken down by Conrad inside the area. Terry Vaughn points to the spot. Excellent ball again. Look at his touch as well, Berbatov. Just lays it in front of him, lets the ball run. It's going to go. Jimmy got caught wrong, so it is a penalty. There's no doubt about that. It changes the face of the game now. You know, they're down to 10 men. I know rules are rules. But... You're one of the veterans and maybe one of the most well-known profiles in the MLS in its first 20 years. And you've been around the league quite a bit, even after retiring. Where would you say we're at in terms of its quality today? I'd say we're positioning ourselves to be better. I think the infrastructure is still evolving. 
I'm not a fan of expansion, frankly. I think we're diluting the talent pool in a very big way and our infrastructure hasn't caught up. We need to get our youth academies going. We need to get our scouting network better. We need to stop having kids pay to play. We need to get into uh, underprivileged areas and make sure that they feel like they have an opportunity to take advantage of this new league. You know, we it, it's tough because you also have to know that we're 20 years old and you're competing against leagues here in this country, different sports that are well-oiled machines and have a strong market hold and to break into that. And you have that American expectation that, well, every league here in the United States, man, it's like the best league in the world, man. So like MLS, not the best, whatever. I'm not going to watch it. And this is stupid. You, all these guys too are like national team fans. Well, if you want your national team to be better, you should probably support MLS because that's ultimately going to go hand in hand. Uh, and then you're competing against the best leagues in the world that have been around for a hundred years and have kind of figured it out and made some mistakes. So th there's a lot that's happening. What I get frustrated about, and I put out a video on my YouTube channel, there was a claim about being the best league in, by 2020. And I love it. I mean, I could come on here and be like, hey, guess what? We're going to be the best league in 2020 and kind of give you some some generic examples as to why. But there's really no person, I think, that's, well, how are we really getting there? It's one thing to say it and get some media attention to it and create some conversation around whether MLS can do it or not and get the clickbait and the people to watch and comment and have an opinion. And basically, everybody's bashing like there's got no chance. But there's nobody that's actually saying, well, this is how we're doing it. Because they know that that we're not ready to be the best league in the world in 2020. And instead of being okay with that, it's like we're, we're afraid to announce and acknowledge, hey, you know what? We aren't the best league in the world. But you know what? So the French League isn't the best league in the world. The Bundesliga isn't the best league in the world. They have moments where they probably are and they have some of the best teams and they have games that rival some of the best. I don't know where you stand. It's probably La Liga or, or even the Premier League. I like the Bundesliga too, but you know, the Premier League is probably the best marketed league in the world. Um, La Liga is next level if you got to watch it more regularly. I think people, a lot of people would agree. I like Liga MX too. And the Mexican League's really good. So it's just, there's really no best league in the world. It's such a wide open conversation. So to really tilt it that way and to say that we're going to do that, make these claims, is really disappointing for me because I feel like we're still, oh, we're reacting a little bit. And if we do have somebody that's thinking that far ahead, who is that person? And I, that's what I said in the video. I was like, just tell me who that person is. And I want to see the map of how they're laying it out because we need somebody that has that vision. We have nobody with the vision because we're just reacting to all these opportunities all the time. Oh, I mean, somebody wants to give us $100 million to build a franchise here? Yeah, of course. Why wouldn't we take it? Great. Okay, cool. Now we've just added another complicated layer to our infrastructure because, you know, all this. And then there's a conversation. And I think you and I talked about it off air. There's such a big market here. But the problem is... And I don't want to get into promotion relegation, in fact, because that's another... That could take that a whole different direction. But but there is something unique about promotion relegation is that even if your team never gets promoted, you're part of the conversation. And right now, it seems very elitist. Like, oh, MLS has got these clubs. They're starting to partner with USL, which is great. But then NASL, like, oh, that's crazy. We're not really dealing with them. And then the PDL is something weird. And like, we got to get this other stuff. And it's just... It's all over the map. If promotion relegation existed, it would just have to, it would order everything better. And there'd be such a straight line to how to get to the top for clubs, for fans and everyone. So even if you were in Nashville and you had a fourth division team, you might know, and, and a lot of small clubs do around the world, you might not know, you, like, oh, we're never going to get to the top unless we have oil money or whatever the joke is. But we're part of the conversation. We could get to the top. I think we shrink our market because we only give that exclusivity to, you know, the MLS cities, you know, and I think we, we miss out on people that feel a bit shunned. And on that, you miss out on a lot of advertising dollars and all the other money that comes with it. So I, I think at some point, promotion relegation is going to exist, whether MLS owns the whole structure or not. Uh, I don't know if U.S. Soccer runs it or whatever, but but I think it has to, to to create everybody. So I don't know, man. The state of the state of the league. Short answer, man. I just killed you again with a really long answer. 
it's going in the right direction. Now, I, is that despite ourselves? So is this going to happen anyway? Or is there something that we're doing to, to have that happen? And I think obviously having more, more franchises is, is, is important. But I would just like to temper that growth so that our infrastructure can catch up because I think our infrastructure is way behind uh, our growth at the moment. Tying it back into what you do commercially and from a marketing and content standpoint, what can the MLS do better? I, I think, or do they need to? Oh, I, I, I do. I think there's always room for growth for every sport, you know, and, and how they kind of approach it. I, I don't know if we do the best job of making our players look like heroes. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. When I grew up, here they had NBA Inside Stuff, they had uh, This Week in Baseball, kind of these magazine shows that I would make time for when I was a kid when you had to have destination viewing. And I loved I loved it. There was like a little news segment, then there was some insight from a player, then there'd be something. and Or why we don't have a Nickelo- cartoon on Nickelodeon with players and, you know, just little things like that that start to transcend. Like these little things that just... Then this next generation is used to having MLS. It's always been around for their whole life. You know, they, they don't know anything different. Like, oh, yeah, there's a team here and they're, they're aware of it, which is great. But how do we really tap into that pop culture? You got to have something else, you know, and it can't be these one-offs. It's like, all right, let's have a cartoon. And these kids are soccer players and they're wearing their favorite jerseys from their cities. And But you make the... It's about the cartoon, but then, you know, subconsciously, they're seeing these MLS jerseys. They're getting familiar with these MLS jerseys. Getting familiar with, you know, oh, all of a sudden, they're going to go watch a game, you know, like... They, Build it around going to a different game or whatever. And like, oh, we get to see Landon Donovan or, you know, Clint Dempsey or Michael Bradley. Like, oh, that's so cool. And because that just, it just translates. And if, if, if there's pockets of our pop culture that are thinking that MLS is cool and soccer is cool, it's just, it's going to permeate, uh, throughout everybody. And then you get to the casual fans and you create something different. And you can start to see it. It's happening already, whether it's with merchandise or, you know, uh, lifestyle, like soccer is becoming lifestyle. And, and I think a lot of other athletes are probably want to get in because, I don't know, the way that we support our clubs, the way that we approach being a fan around the sport is feels different than other sports. And, and so I think there's a lot of things they can do. Um, at the same time, as they're just trying to tackle so many things at once. So in fairness to them, and I don't say that often, I probably should, they either just need to grow and add more people and, but that just raises budgets or whatever. So there, there's a lot that, there's a lot at play. And then I might be asking for some things that are unfair at the moment. But one of the things I don't think is unfair is this. Well, I want to see a vision. I think if from an infrastructure standpoint, if, if we had somebody that said, listen, for better or for worse, this is what we're going off of. This is like the bare bones, you know, and we can work off of this and we can have some input here. I mean, you can't have, it can't everything be by committee, but you can get, a committee to get it to one place and then finally have somebody in the executive level to sign off. Like, this is it. This is the direction we're going in for better or for worse. And it just doesn't seem like we even have that. I know there's some things that have been put in place at the youth level that we'd like a kind of a loose thing that people should follow. And I don't even know if that's the right answer, but it's, it's, I feel like working, if we're all working towards something, and I guess where that's my promotion relegation thing came in before, where if there was a point A to point B, everybody would know the trajectory. Right now, the trajectory is all over the place. Oh, you just have to buy into MLS. There's no, there's nothing else. And I think that takes the fun out of it. Whereas you go anywhere else, if you, man, if you just had that one lucky year, like last year, last year, something special can happen. And, and we hurt ourselves because we don't even allow that to happen. And I think you take away a lot of special storylines. Yeah. So there's a ton of things that I think they can do and, and, and to help and to enhance, but I just don't know if they have the manpower to pull it off at the moment. The only point I'll, I'll, I'll make about that, again, I can make a lot of points, <laughs> but it's interesting you mentioned a bit of that narrative of kind of that hero narrative. Mm-hmm. 
that's something inherent in the American culture mm-hmm. in the American storytelling and from movies and all of that mm-hmm. it's almost expected that mm-hmm. there is a hero's story and there is always a crescendo mm-hmm. at the end mm-hmm. where the good guy wins yeah, yeah. and we kind of follow a lot of that same narrative yeah. in, in the way we try to tell it it's really good Whereas not everything needs to have that. Sometimes it might be just about telling a really good story or about a journey of something. And it doesn't need to end in the hero winning. I mean, that, that goes to having playoffs. Why, why MLS has playoffs? It's just, dude, like, I think everybody can understand if you're the best team after 34 games or how many games, you deserve the trophy. Like you were the best over, you survived the ups and downs over 10 months. You deserve the trophy. Why then tack on these playoffs? You do it because. Because, and I bless his heart, Lamar Hunt came in and like, well, MLS needs to have playoffs. Americans only understand playoffs and all that. But then, then when we do our playoffs, our most important games, we play them on a Tuesday night uh, during school year. We're fighting against the NFL. It just doesn't make any sense. Like, and you had all this pressure just, uh, of, of getting so much attention around that. Right. And I think that on the back of that, you know, going back to resources and budgets and they're kind of scrambling for attention mm-hmm. during the playoffs. Right. They might not even get the budgets to work with consistently throughout the year because it's a lot about Mm -hmm. focusing in on the playoffs and maybe a little bit in the lead up to the MLS All-Star game. Mm -hmm. Anyways, we'll leave it at that point. And now I'm truly going to shoot a set of rapid fire questions. I typically tell my guests that, you know, I'm shooting a set of rapid fire questions. I'll go 10 words or less. You can can elaborate if you want. However, because it's you, (laughs) I won't let you elaborate. So it's truly rapid fire. Yes, you got it. Okay, go ahead. I'm going to close my eyes. (laughs) <laughs> your favorite team uh, Newcastle the biggest moment in your career playing in the World Cup the best player you played with played with um, Landon Donovan the best player you've played against uh, Leo Messi your favorite coach Bruce Arena one advice to your 20 year old self and one advice to your 30 year old self a 20-year-old self would be to stay the course. And my 30-year-old self, probably the same advice, stay the course. A couple of recommendations, a book. Hmm. I loved Post Office by Charles Bukowski. A soccer-related film. Uh, I would say, um, I think it's El Rojo Ojo or Ojo Rojo Red Eyes. It's a documentary on the Chilean national team as they qualified for the World Cup. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's brilliant. And I'm biased on that one, having my dad as Chilean. Oh, well, there you go. You get to take three people in the soccer world for dinner. Let's assume language is not a barrier. They can be past or present. Who are the three and where would you take them? Wow. I would take Alessandro Nesta, the Brazilian Ronaldo and Ronaldinho just for party antics maybe that'd be fun and I guess it'd be Nestor Maldini but I would take them to I really love Ethiopian food I've been on a big Ethiopian food kick so I would take them probably to a wash here in the city Uh, it's simple it's easy the food's fantastic and uh, I think we could have a good conversation and then Ronaldinho would lead us out to a good night afterwards (laughs) I bet he would how can people follow you? they can follow me on Twitter at Jimmy Conrad uh, the same as Instagram, it's at Jimmy Conrad. My snap is Simi John Rad. I just switched my letters C and J. And then on YouTube, it's the Jimmy Conrad. Got a mix of a lot of different kinds of videos. So there's something for everybody. You get tutorials. I have a series called How I Did It, which is primarily for kids that want to learn and get better. Proper long ball techniques, stuff that I did to help me get better. 1v1 defending, attacking, that kind of stuff. And then, you know, I do, I do the news. So kind of the backbone of my channel. It's having a nice, light, fun take. Sometimes I'll go straight at you. I uh, do some FIFA 17 content if you're into that. And uh, I do interviews and all kinds of different stuff. So it, it's a fun. There's a variety. There's something for everybody.
And do you have anything you would like to recommend? Okay, and you're, oh, if you're a parent, I'll just give you just some advice that I had gone on a show and I used to host on SiriusXM every once in a while and parents call in, they're all fired up. And I listen, if your kid wants it or if you want it more than your kid, if you're emailing the coach or you're pulling the coach aside to tell you to play more, it's just not going to happen. Like your kid has to want it more than you. Um, I've seen it, I lived it and um, that's going to be the best benefit for them is just to support them and, and as positive as you can listen when they want to be listened to and, and uh, just pick your spots with regard to that. They, they'll, they'll let you know whether they want to do it or not. So that would be my advice to that. A recommendation as it were for all the parents that might be listening. And for kids, if you want to get good, you got to touch the ball every day. Like there's just no escaping it and you got to go find games. You got to play people with older, older than you get out of your comfort zone. It's going to help you develop faster and, and ultimately give you uh, potential opportunities to to go on to do bigger things. Uh, you know, I never thought I'd be in a video game or playing a World Cup uh, just because all that hard work I started to put in when I was 13, 14, 15. So it's all there for the taking. I mean, the, the possibilities are limitless if as long as you don't put any limits on yourself. Last one. Who do you think I should interview on this podcast? Oh, wow. Um, I would love to hear Andrea Pirlo. You know, I know he speaks English, but he's a little shy. So even if he rapped in, in, in Italian and someone, I could listen with an Italian and just have him. Uh, he seems like a, a crack up, you know, and... um so he'd be great. Um, I know you're friends with Maldini, so or at least <laughs> I, at least I, I, you I don't know, know him. friends, okay, acquaintances, or at least he might recognize you if you walk down the street. But you know, being able to hear any of those guys and hear their war stories and to understand how they developed, and you know, obviously Maldini had the pressure of his dad being a big time manager, and you know, just working through all that. I mean, any of those. I mean, all the stories, though they they originate in different parts of the world, have a lot of similarities. So it's always interesting to to find out, you know the struggle and how they fought through it and, and how they kind of rose above the adversity. So I'm always fascinated. It doesn't have to be Pirlo, who's one of my favorite players, who I probably should have invited to dinner, by the way. But uh, yeah, it's just fascinating. Um, I love reading about how people achieve success and how much failure they had to suffer through uh, to get to where they wanted to go. Yeah, I think those are excellent recommendations. Definitely on my list. You know, maybe you can point me to some people who can who can get me closer or, or some good words. I'll do. I'll do my best. <laughs> All right, uh, Jimmy. Seriously, thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, I, I know we could we could spend hours. Oh, no, no uh, question. We're definitely bringing you back on. Oh, I look forward uh, to it. I think we we should probably have like three different talk shows and, <laughs> on, on our own here. <laughs> we should. We should. No doubt. Now, seriously, uh, thank you so much. You're in a very interesting period. And uh, I look forward to following you and, and, and seeing where, where you take that next. So uh, best of luck. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe on iTunes, write a review, tell your friend about it. I would truly appreciate it as we grow this podcast one listener at a time. If you have any feedback or ideas, feel free to send me an email at Sebastian at coffeeandfootball.com. You can also link up with me via Twitter. The handle is at coffeesfootball. Stay tuned for next week's episode. It will be another amazing one. It's with an AC Milan and French national team legend, so you don't want to miss that one. Thanks again, and have an amazing week. are on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 